Let us pray. Shatter the silence, mighty God, with your glad and glorious greetings. Banish all our fears and give us faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. If there is anything said this morning that is against your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said this morning that is according to your will, let it be heard, as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe, and believing, obey. Amen. There's not a lot you can count on these days. You used to be able to count on schools being opened. Thanks, COVID. You used to be able to count on the news to be accurate. You, you used to be able to count on people to be generally decent. But then the internet was invented. You used to be able to count on the lions being disappointing. Well, I guess you can still count on that. But you know what I mean. You used to be able to count on people. You used to be able to count on people in general. How many people can you count on? How many people can you count on? How, how long is that list for you of those you can count on? Who's on it? Are you adding people to the list or are people falling off the list? That list was pretty short in the time of the judges, and it was only getting shorter. Which, of course, is a very new experience for the Israelites, because since their first great exodus from Egypt, they have enjoyed a season of tremendous leadership. Say what you will about Moses and his anger issues, and Joshua and his lust for battle, at least for the Hebrews, they could be counted on. The judges, though? are another story altogether. Following the death of Joshua, there are six major judges who are each given a season in time to rule over the land. They are the ones to be counted on. But by the time all of their stories are told, the Israelite landscape is one of debauchery, rape, and murder. And to read the last Several chapters of Judges is truly a chilling, R-rated experience. Not one of these judges can be blamed for this epic collapse. Their stories aren't silos meant to be taken on their own. No, they're fitted together like a sort of stairs headed downward into a dark place. From the model judge, Othniel, down to Ehud, who delivered the Israelites from the Moabites by assassinating their king while he was relieving himself, down to the prophetess Deborah, whose great military victory was attributed to the womanly wiles of Jael, down to, to Gideon, who will forever be known for his woeful lack of faith and testing of God, down to Jephthah, who short-sightedly secured military victory by promising God that he would sacrifice the first thing he saw when he returned home from battle, 
only to have his daughters meet him at the door. And finally, stepping down those stairs, down here, to Samson. Before he was even born, it was clear that much would be expected of Samson. His birth, like Isaac's before him and Samuel's after him, was to a once barren mother. And so he was dedicated as a Nazarite, or one set aside for service to God. You always knew a Nazarite because they never consumed wine, they never touched dead people, and they never let a razor touch the head, which meant, as we know, that Samson has the kind of hair that kept head and shoulders in business. But very quickly, it becomes very clear that Samson will not be what he was born to be, someone that the Israelites can count on. To put it bluntly, there's just something off about the guy. At one point, he tears apart a lion and eats the honey that bees make in the rotting carcass. At another point, he captures 300 foxes, lights their tails on fire, and sets them running in the Philistine grain fields. Later on, he takes the fresh jawbone of a donkey and uses it to kill a thousand Philistine men. So yeah, evidently he had some issues with animals. Finally, in the story most familiar to us, he is duped by Delilah into revealing the secret of how his strength comes from his hair. At which time, his hair is stolen in his sleep. He is captured by the Philistines who have not forgotten about the foxes or the jawbone. And then they, with great immediacy, take to gouging his eyes out. Which brings us right up to today, where Samson is led into the arena to provide entertainment for his captors. Now blind, he is taken by the hands by a servant. In Hebrew, the word here for servant is na'ar. And it is almost always used in scripture to describe someone who is subservient to another, someone who is young, someone who doesn't do things for himself and can be told what to do by others. It's certainly not something a young man would ever want to be called. So we can translate this as servant or boy or attendant but I think it's just the closest thing that the Hebrew has to the word wimp. And so it is that this once proud man who had the strength to polish off a lion with his bare hands, who once had the hopes of the Israelite people counting on him, is left to count on the hand of the Philistine's village wimp. Is he in good hands? The good news is we are, are not where he is. For all that the world is, for all the trouble we may face, we are not standing between two pillars, eyes gouged out, 
with no one to call friend. In fact, we have a choice. Unlike Samson, most of us still get to decide who will take us by the hand. Most of us get to decide who we will count on, who we will allow to influence our lives. Much of life hinges on this choice, this series of choices. You are not as strong as Samson. Never will be. Neither will I. Strength might be overrated anyway. You cannot control everything. You just can't. You're not strong enough. But you can control, at least to an extent, what Samson couldn't at the end. Who gets to take you by the hand? Who gets to influence your life? You get to control that. We get to control that. Will we be taken by the hand by our parents? Can we still? Are they still here? Could we ever count on them? Do we wish we could count on them again? Will we be taken by the hand by faith leaders? Which ones? Will we be taken by the hand by our friends? Are they there when we need them? Do they listen or explain the feelings away? Which of these offer hands we can count on? Who are the people in life that have good hands? Because we need them more. We need them more than ever. A recent Gallup poll shows that Americans' average life satisfaction has dropped from 62% in 2001 to 53% before the pandemic, all the way to 39% right now. People are sad right now. They are distressed and unreasonable. They're hurting, and some are hurting others. Part of it is that people are in need of a release. Part of it is that people are lonely. Part of it is that people are in grief. And part of it is because of the troubled hands that we are allowing to lead us along into more despair. We need more good hands in our lives. I once had a, a favorite waitress at a local diner and whenever I ordered my oatmeal, she asked if I wanted fruit or brown sugar. She didn't have to ask and I was almost always prepared to eat my oatmeal without it. But she wanted my breakfast to taste better. Who can we count on to be like that waitress? Who can we count on to have the kind of hands that make life taste better? Who gets to influence your life? Do they have good hands? We all need good hands in our lives to make life 
taste better, to make us grow and to help us heal, to show us the way, to lead us forward. From the time we we're very little, we need good hands in our lives. I remember when my son Max was a baby. He needed a lot of good hands. He was into everything. His favorite thing to get into was the heating vents on the floor. He liked to pull them up and then bang them on the floor with great pride. He would also stick his mouth on everything, including said vent. One day when he was a baby, I was in my office and he was crawling around on the floor. And I kept this small Jesus statue on the floor in my office. I have no idea where it came from originally, but it was just sitting there when I arrived. And so it had some sentimental value for me and I kept it. It's ceramic and breakable, so of course Max was relentless in his crawl toward it, trying to work and watch him at the same time, I tried with great diligence to redirect him from his goal, but he wouldn't give up. And finally, in my frustration, I whined aloud, Max, don't touch the Jesus. Which might be the last time in his life he ever hears that. Because when you're looking for someone to take you by their good hands, when you're looking for someone to count on, someone to influence your life, look for the ones relentless in their crawl to touch Jesus. I bet you know a few people like that. I bet you do. Are they getting to influence your life the way that others are? Maybe they should. And even if it seems like none of that's there and that these kind of people, the ones that are, are relentless in their crawl to touch Jesus, well, they're just not a part of your life. You know, they're part of someone else's life, a really good person's life. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope because there is always the village wimp. Even at the end, Samson had the village wimp. And sometimes, even though this wasn't the case with Samson, sometimes the village wimp is not at all what you think he is. There was this one village wimp in first century Palestine. That's what some thought he was anyway. He didn't care about power the way that everyone else did. He tried to get everyone to, to be a servant, encourage everyone to reach out and be counted on by the weakest among them. And he went, he went so far as to have his own good hands taken, taken from him, taken to the cross. And the thing about that village wimp is that he did all of that. He did all of that so that we would know the guiding presence 
of his good hands. Even you, you might know the guiding presence of his good hands, even today. Amen.